Whenever we preach the gospel, we will face severe and angry opposition. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them and, since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The leadership tried to stop the disciples, but the Holy Spirit emboldened Peter and John, said, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Can you hear me? Right on. We are now in chapter 4 of Acts. If you take your Bibles, please, and turn there to Acts chapter 4. And last week, we, we looked at chapter 3, and we began that chapter with the healing of a lame man. And Peter, seeing his opportunity, he seized upon it, and he preached a sermon. And what followed is an amazing number of people put their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, the numbers increased from 3,000 to 5,000 men, plus their families. So we're looking at, could be up to 20,000 people that became Christians in those first few uh, uh, days of, of the birth of the church. In chapter 4, verse 4, it says, But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. So we're seeing a great move of the Spirit of God here. We were reminded last week that, that our purpose in life is to glorify God. In fact, that's what we see in chapter 3. Through the healing of the lame man and through the preaching of the sermon so that many came to Christ, God was glorified. In fact, that's why these people came to Christ is because God was glorified. What do we mean when we talk about, some, about God being glorified? What we're talking about is, is that our activities, what we say, what we do, what happens, it causes people to praise God. That's what we mean by glorifying God. It points, glorifying God means we're pointing everything to God and recognizing his goodness and his faithfulness. Now, what you need to understand is this, is that wherever God works, whenever, whenever God is being glorified, how many know that Satan doesn't like it? Satan is going to do everything in his power to stop God being glorified. Why does he do that? Because he hates God, and he hates us. He hates God's creation. So Satan is not going to sit back doing nothing. Hey, you know that you're doing something when you come under attack from Satan. You know you must be doing something right. Satan is not sitting back doing nothing. So here's what we come to in verse, uh, verses 1 to 3 of Acts chapter 4. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. What was their crime? Why were they arrested? Their simple crime was that they were preaching about Jesus and they were preaching about the resurrection of the dead. What happens, people, when we preach about Jesus? Well, about 40 years ago, there's a new movement. It actually maybe goes back even further than that. But really, 40 years ago is about the time that I began ministry. You've heard me say this before. The church growth specialist said that whatever we do, we have to make sure that we make church attractive. Attractive to whom? Attractive to the unbeliever. We want to make sure that people who don't know Jesus will be attracted and will want to come to church every Sunday. 
Now, this is what a lot of churches have done over the years, and a lot of churches are still doing that. And rather than understanding that our role is to teach people to obey Christ and to follow Christ, we make it simply an attractive place to come where there's good music, good coffee, good socializing, some good events, some good programs, a place just you can sing in the choir if you like singing, you can be in the drama club if you like the drama club. But this is not what we see happening in the New Testament church. This is not what we find happening in the scripture. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, he tells us something else. He says, since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. So you see now that Jesus' emphasis is not on making the sinner comfortable. He's, he's concerned that the sinner knows the truth. When we confront people with the truth, what happens is that we are confronted right back. And that's what's happening here. You need to understand this. Whenever you preach the gospel, whenever you share the gospel with others, people are going to protest. They're going to, they're going, they're going to push back. In fact, uh, we've seen recently, in recent days, a number of churches across Canada that have had picketers, people who are outside the church with their signs picketing against what is being preached in the church. Hey, can I just tell everybody, when that happens, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a good thing when the world says, hey, we don't like what you're preaching. Why is that a good thing? It means, folks, that Jesus Christ is being glorified, and it means that the truth is going forth. And it wouldn't surprise me if in not too distant future, we started to see people protesting and even picketing outside our own church. Well, look what else happens. They were, they, uh, they were confronted, and it says that the leaders were very disturbed whenever we preach the gospel, it disturbs people. It makes people upset. Now, this goes against what a lot of people think, because they think, well, you know, isn't Jesus all about peace? He's the prince of peace, and, and whenever Jesus is preached, doesn't that mean that it just brings peace and joy and love, and we all just hug and kiss each other, and there's warm, warm fuzzies, and isn't that what it's all about? No, not at all. Not at all. When Jesus Christ is proclaimed, it disturbs people. In fact, what I'm going to share with you today is going to disturb you. This is what happens when the gospels preached. Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Whenever the truth goes forth, it divides people. It makes people angry. You either have to stand with Christ or you have to stand against Christ. This is what is happening here. And they will do everything in their power to stop you from preaching the gospel. They'll try to stop you from doing that which God's called us to do. And this is what they do. They arrested them. They literally stopped them dead in their tracks, and they threw them into jail. Folks, we're seeing, we're seeing now, by chapter 4, we're seeing the slow development of the church. It begins with the Great Commission in chapter 1. We talked about that. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the beginning. The next step is that they are praying together all in one accord. This is the development of the church. This is the, the usual. This becomes the new practice of the believers. They meet together to pray. What happens next? Well, the Holy Spirit is poured out. We see the birth of the church. And, and, then, and then what happens after the birth of the church? Well, then we begin to preach. We're preaching the gospel. What are we preaching? We're preaching about Jesus. This is what we do. We preach about Christ. A church that doesn't preach about Christ is a church that's taking up space. It's a waste of time. And folks, listen to me. This is why so many churches right now are closing on a regular basis, particularly the United Church. The United Church is closing, I think that the that the current rate is about one a week. One church a week in Canada is being closed. Why is that? Because the minute you stop preaching Christ is the minute you don't have a reason to exist. Amen. Right? Amen. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? That's why the church closes down. The church starts shrinking, starts falling apart, starts being divided. The attendance drops off the minute you stop preaching the truth. So here's what you can depend on uh, when it comes to cross church. You can depend on your pastor to not 
to never stop preaching Christ. I will preach Christ no matter what. They can protest outside, they can, they can lock me up, they can drag me away, but I'm not gonna stop preaching Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the hope of the world, amen? He's the hope of the world. And so this is what they're doing. And Peter and John, they don't care. They're not worried to bring on the priest, bring on the captain of the temple guard. You think that's gonna scare me? The temple, the temple, the captain of the temple guard? I serve the king of kings. That's not going to disturb me. No. So this is the next step in the growth and the development of the church, persecution. Now, some of you are sitting here today saying, well, hold hold on a minute here, Pastor. When I became a Christian, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) I didn't sign up to be persecuted. Yes, you did. You just didn't know it. And if you read your Bible the way I keep telling you to, you would know this. And this is what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Let's read it together. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first, Jesus says. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. You and I are not like the world. We don't have the same interests of the world. We don't have the same desires as the world. We don't have the same pursuits or the same goals as the world. Jesus said, I chose you to come out of the world so it it hates you. The world hates you because of your love of Christ. Did you know that? That's why they hate you. And And nothing's gonna change unless the world begins to love Jesus. They're not gonna love you. They're either gonna love Jesus or they're gonna hate you and Jesus. Verse 20, do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. So everybody's clear about this. As a Christian, I will be persecuted. Say that with me. As a Christian, and everybody's happy with that? Amen. You can go home now. <laughs> no, I got a few more things to say. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus, in fact, promises this. He promises a lot of wonderful things, but he also promises that we will indeed be persecuted. Now, it's interesting because when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you need to know that. This is, this is sort of the, the, the collection of the main teachings of Jesus Christ. He begins with the Beatitudes. He answers the question that every human being has. Every person, whether he's a Christian or not a Christian, everybody wants to know what? I want to know how can I be happy? And so Jesus says, happy are you if you do these things. Or blessed. Blessed, happy means the same thing. Except blessed is God... It's a, a more, uh, uh, it's got a fuller meaning. There's, there's great profound joy that comes along with what Jesus is talking about. But, you know, for our purposes, let's just say happy. You'll be happy if you do these things. And then he comes to the end of the Beatitudes, and we're all like, yeah, that's good. I agree with that. That sounds good. I like that. But then he closes the Beatitudes with these words. He says in John 5, 11, 12, blessed are you, happy are you, joyful are you, When people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus, you must be making a mistake here. Are you sure this is what you mean? That doesn't make sense. Jesus, do you want me to follow you? Because this is not a good way to get me to follow you. This is not good news. But Jesus says you'll be blessed if you persecute it for his name's sake. In fact, he, he doesn't leave it at that. Because we're tempted to sort of skip over that part, right? Try to just maybe speed up, read over it real quickly. But in case you missed that, he goes on to say, and by the way, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hmm. You, if you think about that, who on earth could be happy because they're being persecuted? That's not possible. It doesn't compute. The brain just can't compute this. In fact, the brain wants to shut down or, or, or blow up. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. How can I be happy if I'm being persecuted? Well, listen, only somebody who is born again and has the Holy Spirit in them can understand this. 
And Paul tells us this, doesn't he? He says that the natural mind cannot receive spiritual truth. If you're born again, then you understand. If you're, if you're converted and the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you understand this. And by the way, Paul tells us clearly in Romans chapter 8 that if, if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not born again. You're not a Christian. Only people who have the Spirit are Christians. This is what Paul tells us. So, so watch this. Watch this. In verses 5 to 7. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and teachers of religious law, they met in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas. Now remember, Peter and John had been arrested and thrown into jail, and presumably the man that they healed, the lame man, was probably also thrown into jail because the lame man is always with them. He's he's always at their side. So it's really interesting to see this. So they're in jail. The next day they, they call the council together. So Annas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest, and they brought in the two disciples and demanded, all right, here we go. By what power or in whose name have you done this? Hey, before we go any further, there's something I need to point out to you. This is an extremely intimidating group. If you think that you have faced intimidation, you have never faced that kind of intimidation that Peter and John are facing. Pastor Alan, why do you say that? Because these men are executioners. They have the power of the death sentence at their disposal. Remember, it's these men who handed Jesus over to Pilate to be, perse- to be, to be put to, get, to death. Think of all the intimidating people you've come across. You've never come across anything like this. So there's Peter and John fishermen in the court, the highest court in Israel before these doctors of the law. And they now are raking them over the coals. Annas and his family, they plotted to kill Lazarus. Remember that? Remember Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? And we read in John chapter 12, verse 10, that that they tried to kill Lazarus. Why? Because every time anybody looked at Lazarus, what did they think? Oh, he's the guy that was dead. He's the guy that Jesus rose from the dead. And this really annoyed the leaders. They think, well, what are we going to do? We got to get rid of him. Because he keeps reminding everybody about Jesus. Wow. It It was Caiaphas and Annas who had Jesus put to death. Now, here's what you need to understand. In asking Peter and John this question, in whose power do you do these things? They were setting a trap for them. If you know Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, you'll know that God pronounces the death penalty for false prophets who would ascribe any kind of miracle to anyone other than God. And so these clever high priests, these doctors, of the law, these men with their, with their doctorate and jurisprudence, they're going to trick these foolish, these ignorant fishermen. In fact, if you look at the word they use to describe the fishermen, they are literally calling the fishermen idiots. You see the arrogance of these men? These idiots, what do they know? They figured they'd trap them and then put them to death, and that'd be the end of their problems, Right? Wrong. The trap wasn't going to work. Do you remember the last time somebody questioned Peter about his knowledge of Jesus? What did he do? He denied Jesus once, denied Jesus twice, and then the third time he not only denied Jesus, but he cursed. And the disciples ran for their lives. But this is not happening this time. Peter and John aren't running anywhere. They're not cowering. They're not apologizing. They're not saying, oh, please forgive us. We, were, we just got out of hand a little bit. We were just too excited. It was our enthusiasm. We couldn't help what we said, but please, we, we'll never do it again. None of that. Peter and John now, they have the power. 
power of Almighty God at work in them. The Holy Spirit has filled them and anointed them and equipped them to do the work that God had called them to do. This is a very, very different Peter and John. This is a Peter and John who have come to life in the name of Jesus. And folks, this is exactly what God wants to do in our lives. You have been given his power. You've You've been given his spirit. And the wonderful thing is that God has got more of his power available to you. We read about that, and we're going to talk more about that in the days ahead. Well, you would think, wouldn't you, that maybe Peter would be paralyzed with fear. You would think that maybe you would be paralyzed with fear. Not so. Not so at all. In fact, look at look what happens. I love verse 8. Oh. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the rulers and elders of our people, are we, going, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Now who's the idiot? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you who are supposed to be so smart, so learned, so brilliant, let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Peter and John, what are you doing? You are now turning this whole thing around. And you are actually pointing your finger at these men and telling them that they're the ones that killed Jesus. What are you doing, Peter and John? What are you doing? They knew exactly what they were doing. They were speaking the truth. They were telling the truth. Listen, this is exactly what you and I are called to do in the name of Jesus. We're called to speak truth the truth. How many know today that the great need of the world is that God's people go forth in his name and tell the truth? We have a world that wants to tell us that, well, you have your truth and I have my truth. Look at a young child can understand that that is logically impossible. You can't have your truth and I have my truth. If our truths don't agree or that they contradict, then one of us is a liar, right? I hope that our people here are smart enough to understand that. I think Cross Church is especially brilliant. Some are are sure, some aren't so sure. (laughs) Look it. You need to see that the Holy Spirit always empowers us and helps us when it comes to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. You can go to the bank on that because that's what Jesus promised. How many are afraid to tell people about Jesus, honestly? I remember talking to my pastor, Pastor Barber, the Pastor Barber. He was called Canada's greatest preacher. And I asked him one day, because I was really concerned about that. I said, Pastor Barber, how do you ever tell people, how do you evangelize? How do you tell people about Jesus? And I thought he was going to tell me some, some secret, some, some, some unknown secret that only the great men of God knew. And he totally shocked me when he said, oh, Alan, huh. i got to screw up my courage. You do? You, Pastor Barber, who speaks to 2,500 to 3,000 people every Sunday, you've got to screw up your courage to tell people about Jesus? Yeah. But here's the thing, is that we don't go in our own wisdom, we don't go in our own power, we don't go in our, according to our own ability, we go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I, this is what I want you to know today. You need to tell people about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit will enable you to speak the words that you need to speak just as God helped Peter and John. Wow. I'm going to tell you, this is an important principle of the Christian life. The Holy Spirit, my friends, listen, is not just given for our own pleasure and joy. And I'm telling you, I I enjoy the presence of God. I enjoy the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. But it's not just for my enjoyment. It's for the empowerment to go 
and tell others about Christ. Now, here's the thing. As you tell people about Christ, you will face opposition. It's not a maybe. It's a for sure. And I'll tell you, the sign that you are converted is that you're okay with that. Yeah, that's fine. I'm willing to do that. And I'm going to tell you this. The Holy Spirit will always point people to Jesus. So whatever we're doing here on Sunday, any of the preaching, any of the worship, anything that takes place here on a Sunday morning, it's all about glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we understand then that we as Christians will always be persecuted. And we see that right at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. This is the natural development of the church. It begins with preaching the God, with the infilling of the Spirit. It begins with the preaching of the gospel. And then, it, and then the next step is, in fact, persecution. Well, what is Peter going to say further about Jesus Christ, you may wonder? Well, here's where we're reminded today that our job is, in fact, on Sunday to preach Christ. Now, in many churches, uh, they might mention the name of Jesus, they might mention the cross, but it, Christ is not at the center. If you're taking notes, you have to write this down. Jesus must always be at the center. He must be the subject, not the object of the, of the, of the lesson or, or the object of the sentence. He must be the subject. He must, must be the person of whom we speak. You'll see churches that are, are, will give psychology lessons on Sunday morning, but I'm telling you that no psychology lesson is going to solve our problems. Only Jesus can do that. And so here's, here's what Peter says. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now let me just quickly unpack this. Peter is quoting Psalm, Psalm 118, when he says, the scripture says, this the stone you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Look at this. You builders is, in fact, referring to the spiritual leaders, the, the high priests. You're the ones that rejected Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone. Now, this is some pretty heavy-duty theology that Peter's talking about. And it really set these leaders back. They're like, oh, what's going on here? How do these guys know about this? This is Psalm 118, verse 22, in fact. The stone that the builders have rejected has now become the cornerstone. Can I just remind everybody what a cornerstone is? In the olden days, when they would do a building, the, mason, the masons would take one stone, and it would be from that stone that the rest of the building would then uh, uh, be built, would be from that stone. That stone would determine the direction that the building would face. And all the, all the rest of the stones then would be built according to that cornerstone. Peter picks up on this theme in his letters. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in fact, verse 6 to 8, Peter reminds us that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and that furthermore, you and I are the stones then that are placed in accordance to that cornerstone. In other words, what Peter is saying is that Jesus or God does not dwell in temples built by the hands of men. God dwells in us. Remember that picture at the beginning where, the, where we saw the, the Shekinah glory over the Holy of Holies, that pillar of fire? And then all of a sudden, it sweeps into the, into the upper room and then separates and rests over the head of every one of the believers. And now, rather than God dwelling in a temple, now he dwells in his people. And Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one by which we live. And it's within us that Jesus lives. This is why Peter says about our bodies, you can't just do whatever you want with your body. Your body is not yours. It's bought with a price. Don't you know, Peter, uh, Paul says, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So God dwells within us. And Peter understands all this. And this is making these religious leaders crazy. How can they know all this? Oh no, Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. You want to know whose name we're preaching? It's in the name of Jesus. He's the one. 
because there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved in the name of Jesus. He is the only way to God. He is the only source of salvation. Now, can we just stop here for a moment? Because many of you maybe have friends who will say, well, all religions lead to God. And maybe you had a teacher in school that told you that. All religions lead to God. In fact, to the natural mind, it seems to make sense. It actually makes us feel good, doesn't it? It makes us feel good to think, oh, yeah, everybody's cool. Everybody has their own religion. As long as you are faithful and you are sincere and as long as you are committed to your religion, everything's cool, right? Wrong. Some of you may have heard of what's called omnism or syncretism. And this is, uh, this is the, the symbol of syncretism, omnism. And in there, you'll see Islam, for instance, and Judaism and Christianity and, and Hinduism and Buddhism and on and on it goes. And again, it's tempting to say, yes, this is good. This makes sense. Isn't it better for all one? We're all one big happy family. And they'll say, but there's a little bit of truth in all of them and a little, the little bit of truth that each one can contribute together makes a wonderful religion and now this is our new religion. And the tagline will be, humanity should be our race and love should be our religion. But there's one thing wrong with this, is that Christianity can't stand in here because Christianity declares what? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. By definition, Christianity can't be included in this wheel. It sounds like a good idea. It appeals to the natural mind. It appeals to the world. But Jesus says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You see, Jesus Christ is exclusive. Now, you could see why what we preach and teach makes the world go absolutely snake-raving mad. They just think we are so arrogant, so conceited. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are proclaiming this, that you, your way is the only way? And the fact is, it is. Jesus, C.S. Lewis said, is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's the Lord. If he's the Lord and he says he's the only way to God, well, that cancels out everything else. You see that? But here's what's happening in the United Church and in many churches now. They're, they're moving towards a syncretism where they believe that we can bring everything together. And look at every single church that has taken that route is dying or is dead. I'll tell you why. Because the glory of the Lord departs and there's nothing to hold it together. But the reason our church is strong, the reason our church is thriving and growing, and the reason that our church is able to do what it's doing is because we have been faithful in proclaiming that Jesus Christ alone is the hope of the world. Amen. There is no other way to God. There is no other way to the Father. And so we continue to proclaim Christ. And I'm telling you, as long as Alan Duncalf is a pastor of this church, you can depend that you're not going to hear any other message except Jesus Christ is the one that saves the world. That's it. That's it. But I'm going to tell you, as long as we're preaching this, and as long as you believe this, and as long as you are telling your friends this, there's a good chance you're going to experience some persecution. Well, Peter, uh, Peter has made it very clear what he believes, hasn't he? He's left no doubt in anybody's mind. There's no, well, maybe he, what he really meant was this or that. No. He was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, in case you're wondering which Jesus Christ. He's the Nazarene Jesus Christ. He's the man that you crucified, you hung him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Anybody have any doubts or questions about who Peter is talking about? There's no doubt, is there? It's about Jesus Christ. Well, now, these doctors of the law, these so-called religious leaders, 
They are amazed, it says in verse 13. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. In fact, in the Greek, it says they were ignorant or they were idiots. <laughs> it's the same root word. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. I like it that they locked the, the healed man up with Peter and John. Isn't that, they must have had a great prayer time, a great prayer meeting that night when they were in jail. Peter, John, and the man that had been lame from, from birth. And you think the lame man minded being locked up with Peter and John? I'll bet he was like, this is fantastic. What a great time we're having. This is fantastic. I couldn't walk my whole life. I can walk now and I can even sit in prison with you guys. It's amazing what happens when God gets hold of our hearts and lives. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and they conferred among themselves because they really didn't know what to do. Peter, John, lame man, get out for a minute. We need to talk. We got to figure this one out. We don't know what to do. Verse 13 says that they were amazed at the boldness and the authority that Peter had. Where did it come from? The power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. That same power is, is available to you and dwells within you. Verse 13, they recognized they had no special training. They were idiots. But they were now challenging these doctors of the law that had no answer. They didn't know how to answer them. Where did that come from? The power of the Holy Spirit. They've been with Jesus. They were speechless. I love it. The doctors of the law. These men with their doctorates and jurisprudence have been stumped by the idiot fishermen. Don't you love that? You're sitting here today thinking, well, I can't go preach telling people about Jesus. I didn't get my doctorate in, in theology. I didn't get my master's. I didn't get my bachelor's degree. Turns out you don't need to have any of those things. All you need is the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he will enable you and empower you to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And that's what we're seeing happening here. Hey, before we go further, let's take a lesson from these, these religious leaders, these men who knew the scripture forward and backward. They were unmoved by the healing. It didn't touch their hearts. This happens to all of us, by the way. We can hear a great sermon, a great message. We can see God do a miracle. Your needs are met. You pray, you say, oh God, if only you'll do this thing, then I will do the other thing. And then God does it, and then you don't do anything. How is it that we can be so hard-hearted? Well, I'll tell you what makes us hard-hearted. In their case, it was, it was a, a love of power. They didn't want Jesus, Peter, James, John, or any of the disciples. They didn't want these men disrupting the political order. Because as long as Rome was occupying Jerusalem, it meant they had these powerful positions and it, mean, it meant that they would be rich. And because of their love of money and because of their love of power, it hardened their hearts. I'm gonna tell you, the same thing will happen to you. This is why Jesus tells us, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna wear, what you're gonna drink, about the roof over your head. Don't worry about anything. Rather, what should we do? Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the things you need will be given to you. Christians can be guilty of be having a hard heart. Listen, you think, oh, well, it's just, just me worrying. It's just, you know, it's just the way I am. It's just one of those cute things about me, one of those charming things about me. I'm just a worry ward. I can't help it. Listen, my mother was like that. My grandmother was like that. I'm like that too. Oh, well, ha, ha, ha. It's just what makes me me. No, it's sin, Jesus says. It's sin. Because what happens, my friends, is that worry then becomes greed. Worry becomes greed, and next thing you know, more important than the will of God, more important than what God wants to do in you and through you, is now having what you want and doing what you want and getting what you want. This is why you must not worry and why you must seek first the kingdom of God. It's not just so that you don't worry. You miss the point if that's what you think this is about. 
It's so that you don't become greedy and miserly. It's so that you understand that God is sovereign over all, and God will meet our needs no matter what. And this is Peter and John. They weren't worried about a thing. They, they weren't worried about being in prison. They knew that God would take care of them. And these so-called teachers of the law, they should have understood this. So we read then in verses 16 to 18, these leaders saying, well, what should we do with these men? We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. Verse 17, but to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. How do you think that's going to work? Well, now we've got that solved. Verse 19, so they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, what do you think the disciples will say? Oh, I love this. I love this. You ready for this? For Jesus is the one referred to. Hang on a minute here. That's not what I want you to see. This is it. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? That's obviously a rhetorical question. The disciples are assuming that these teachers of the law are smart enough to understand the answer. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard, the disciples say. Listen, what did Jesus say when he gave the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel? What did he say? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and preach the gospel. What Peter is saying is, you men might think you have authority, but we function by a higher authority. And his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. Does that send chills down your arms and legs? It does me. So if you think that God wants us to obey you rather than him, you're the idiots. We can't stop. We're not going to stop. It's not going to happen. So the council then threatened them further. What else can they do? Just keep threatening them. But they finally let them go. Why did they let them go? Because it was the right thing to do? No, it was because they were spineless wimps. Because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot, is what the Bible says. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. And so concludes chapter 4. Now some of you are saying, Oh, I'm so glad we're done with the persecution sermon. <laughs> we got that one over with. You haven't seen anything yet. There's more persecution to come. And you're going to hear about that in the weeks to come. Folks, here's what you and I need to understand. We do not compromise the message of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. We preach a message of repentance. We call men, women, and children to come and repent of their sin, to confess that they're sinners, and ask Jesus to forgive them. And the beautiful thing is this, my friends. The apostle said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is our message. Hallelujah. That's the, the message the world is looking for. Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois back several hundred years ago. He was an uncompromising man. He had left Tennessee because of his great hatred of slavery. He had opposed it constantly. And he came under attacked because of his opposition to slavery, so he moved to Illinois to preach. One Sunday morning, when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson was in the congregation. Can you imagine if, Pierre, not Pierre, if Justin Trudeau showed up for church one Sunday? Well, 
knowing Pastor Cartwright was used to saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, and regardless of how people might react, the deacons warned him and begged with him and pleaded with him, please don't say anything that will offend the president. Well, those are fighting words. You've just poured gasoline on the fire. Don't tell me to stop proclaiming Christ. Don't tell me to stop telling people about Jesus. And so Pastor Cartwright stood up to preach, and he said, quote, I understand that President Andrew Jackson is here. I have been requested to be guarded in my remarks, to be careful of what I say. Andrew Jackson, you will go to hell if you do not repent. <laughs> Don't you love that? The audience was shocked. Everybody's upset. The deacons are, are wringing their hands. They're holding their heads. What have we done? Are we going to be, our, is, will our church be closed? They wondered how the president would respond to this. After the service, the president took Pastor Cartwright aside. You know what he said? He said, sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the whole world. <laughs> Folks, that is the power of God at work in the life of the believer. You have the Holy Spirit enable you, enabling you and empowering you and giving you a boldness to tell people about Jesus. Don't worry about the persecution. What you need to worry about is doing the will of God. Jesus said, don't fear the one who, who can kill your body. What you need to do is you need to fear the one who can throw you in hell. Them strong words. But folks, it comes right out of the Bible. This is the truth. And Jesus said what? If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, as we are about to partake of communion together, we pray that our hearts would be full of joy and full of gladness at what you have done for us. Oh God, this communion is not for perfect people, it's for sinners. It's for people who rely fully and completely upon Christ and his death on the cross for our sins. Oh God, we rejoice today for what you've done. And now, Lord, as we take a few moments to examine our hearts to make sure there's no unforgiveness in our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the sin that needs to be confessed so that we can come to your table with glad and sincere hearts, we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a moment right now, please, to examine your heart. And again, if there is any unforgiveness in your heart, let it go right now in the name of Jesus, knowing that as you forgive, God also has forgiven you. Amen. You've heard me say it before, for some people, communion is a, is a terrifying thing because, well, frankly, we just don't feel worthy. And I want to remind everyone today that, in fact, no one is worthy. Uh, I am definitely not worthy. But Jesus Christ has washed my sins away, and I put my faith in him for that. And so this is for sinners. It's for you today. For some people, it's a stressful time, but you don't need to be stressed at all. You need to relax and rejoice in what Jesus Christ has done for you. 
We've been talking about the grace of God being extended to us when we go to church on Sunday. And it's on Sunday that we, we partake of, of communion. And as you take this communion, you will indeed receive God's grace. When I talk about God's grace, what am I talking about? I'm talking about his empowering us. The power of God comes upon us to live the Christian life. And as we take of communion, that's exactly what happens. You receive God's grace. It gives you peace. So many of us, when we sin, we run away from God rather than running to God. We see that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sinned. What did they do? They ran away from God and they hid from God. But as we take communion today, we're reminded that we need to run to God because God, through Jesus Christ, will forgive us our sins. Hallelujah. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's take it together, shall we? Father, thank you this morning that your, your word is a lamp for our feet. And it's through your revealed word that we discover and learn exactly what your plan is for us. We understand what your, what your plan of redemption is. And we discover in your word that Jesus Christ came to die for us and to take away our sins. And so we rejoice this morning, Lord in the grace that comes to us through receiving this communion. Instead of the guilt and shame that racks us, it's washed away. Our sins have been forgiven. And this is what communion reminds us of. We are clean through Christ. Would you stand with me, please, as we take the cup? In the same manner, after Jesus had broken the bread, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I return. Let's take it together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Oh, Father, we rejoice today. We rejoice that we are yours. We rejoice that through this communion, we have Christ in common. Father, we pray that you would fill each heart with joy and with gladness, being reminded that in, in having our sins removed, we are indeed part of the wonderful family of God. And so, Father, go with us as we go from this place, with our sins forgiven and our hearts full of joy and gladness. And may we be faithful regardless persecution. We pray, Lord, that be found faithful. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.